You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The direction that we're heading is already one where renewables, they're just going to dominate capacity emissions. Coal is likely to go into structural decline and its share in the global energy mix is just going to decline. The coal miners are just dinosaurs waiting to die. For February 15th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the energy transition continues to accelerate, it's more important than ever that we update our models, both our empirical and mental models, of where we're heading. As we discussed with Liam Denning in the previous episode, it's harder than ever to forecast the future demand for oil and gas, with both increasing pressure on the demand side in the form of EVs and increasing pressure on the supply side as producers struggle to match their investment in new supply with an uncertain demand outlook. And beyond transportation, we are seeing policies continuing to tighten in all sectors globally as the world tries to curb global warming by integrating ever higher shares of renewables onto the grid, converting space heating from fossil fuels to electric appliances powered by renewables, turning to green hydrogen as a decarbonization strategy, and all the other methods we discuss on this show. So it wasn't much of a surprise to learn that the International Energy Agency's modeling team quickly updated their scenarios of future modeling and energy supply after new pledges were announced at the COP26 summit in November, and that their updated models suggested that the world's pledges are now guiding a full half-degree lower in warming by 2100. It also seems like a good time to revisit IEA's scenarios and review what the world needs to do to put us on a trajectory to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, as it has been nine months since we last checked in on that with the IEA's Tim Gould in episode 148. So I invited Christoph McGlade, head of the Energy Supply Unit at IEA, to join us for today's conversation and discuss their scenarios, as well as his expert view on stranded fossil fuel assets and how the oil and gas industry might need to adjust as the energy transition rolls on. Christoph is a genuine expert in these topics, and I know you will find his perspective informative. Then in the news segment, we'll note the cancellation of oil and gas leases in U.S. federal areas over emissions concerns. We'll have a look at a recent statement from former nuclear regulators. We'll check out a new grant program for wave energy from the U.S. Department of Energy. We'll review a plan to procure battery storage in California to fill the gap when its Diablo Canyon nuclear plant retires. And we'll salute the astonishingly large result of an offshore wind leasing round in Scotland. But before we go to the interview, if you're an annual subscriber considering a new career in energy transition, be sure to log into our website and check out the new listings on our job board. As I write this, it has open postings for roles in business development and finance for renewables projects, administrative assistance and internships at a national lab, and 21 jobs at a battery storage company. And now our conversation with Christoph McGlade, recorded January 27th, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Christoph, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. In your role as the head of Energy Supply Unit at IEA, you are closely involved with the development of IEA's scenarios and its modeling. So I wanted to have you on the show to discuss the scenarios discussed in IEA's flagship annual report, The World Energy Outlook, which was published in October 2021. 
to feed into the discussions at the COP26 Climate Summit. And our listeners may find it helpful to also review our conversation about the World Energy Outlook 2020 report, which we discussed with your colleague Tim Gould in episode 148. In the 2021 World Energy Outlook, which I will just refer to as the WEO, IEA explored three main scenarios, a net zero emissions by 2050 scenario, or NZE, a stated policy scenario, or STEPS, and an announced pledges scenario, or APS. Just to get us started, so why don't you briefly summarize for us how these three scenarios depict possible futures and what degree of warming they imply by 2100? Certainly. So as your listeners will know from previous guests, there are lots of different scenarios of the future that are produced by the IEA and by other organizations. And these can be grouped together in different ways. But there's two common groupings. First of all, there's scenarios that take starting conditions as a given, and they explore how the world will evolve from there. And secondly, we have scenarios that take the endpoint as a fixed goal and work out how the world can get towards that goal. Starting with the, the stated policy scenario, our steps, it's in this first camp. It's an exploratory scenario that we have been publishing for a large number of years now. And the steps includes just the policies that governments around the world have put in place and the measures that they have under development. And this allows us to explore what would be the outlook for energy demand, for supply, for prices, for the whole energy system without any major additional steer from policymakers. In this scenario, the future looks an awful lot like the past. And if we extrapolate emissions over the long term, we would end up with global warming of around about 2.6 degrees Celsius by 2100. I should perhaps just add here that some people interpret the steps as being an IEA forecast as our best estimate of what's going to happen in the future. This is a misunderstanding of what the steps is looking to do. The aim of that scenario really is to hold a mirror up to policymakers to help them to understand what are the implications and the consequences of the policies that they have in place today. Hopefully it's the case that armed with the information that they get from the steps, they will make changes to those policies going forwards. And that's why every year we have to do a full and complete update to the steps. That's a helpful clarification. The announced pledges scenario, one of the other scenarios you mentioned, it's another exploratory scenario. We first published it for the first time last year. But in contrast to the steps, it takes the assumption that all of the climate commitments made by governments around the world will be met in full and on time. Again, as your listeners will know, nearly all countries today have announced that they want to achieve net zero emissions at some point in the future. For example, Europe has said it wants to achieve net zero by 2050, as has the United States. China said by 2060, some countries earlier than this, some countries later. But what the announced pledges scenario aimed to do was to look at what it would mean for energy markets if all of those pledges were to be achieved as pledged. We didn't want to second guess whether it was likely that they would be achieved, but just look at what the consequences would be. And what we found, again, looking at emissions, was that this scenario would lead to warming of about 2.1 degrees by 2100. And finally, back in May of last year, we published for the first time our net zero emissions by 2050 scenario. This is a normative scenario. It has a long-term goal to have the energy sector 
emitting net zero emissions by 2050. And in addition to this, it also wants to meet the main UN sustainable development goals, in particular related to universal access to energy by 2030, and also having major improvements in air quality. Achieving net zero CO2 emissions by 2050 is more or less consistent with limiting the global temperature rise by 2100 to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And one of the key messages from that report that we released in May was that this pathway towards net zero in 2050 is a narrow pathway and it's going to be incredibly challenging, but it is an achievable goal. Great. That's really helpful. And I don't think that a lot of people understand the way that these scenarios are constructed or why they're structured the way they are. So it's really helpful, I think, to just articulate right up front that you have some scenarios that sort of start from existing conditions and work forward, and then other scenarios that start with the end point that you want to get to and work out how to get there. That's really helpful. And just to put maybe a finer point on it, IEA does not actually establish the likelihood of any of these scenarios, right? It doesn't actually say this is what we think is going to happen. Correct. Okay. There's no long-term forecast that we produce. Great. So following the October release of the full WIO, you published a fourth scenario called the updated APS in November in a publication called Technical Note on the Emissions and Temperature Implications of COP26 Pledges. Why did you publish that scenario and what does it imply about warming by 2100? So as you mentioned at the start there, we published the WIO in October of last year. And one of the goals of the WIO, we normally publish it in November, but we published it earlier last year because we wanted it to feed in to the climate negotiations at COP26. And one of the key messages of that report was that we're not on track for achieving 1.5 degrees and that much more action is needed. And we saw that after we published the World Energy Outlook in the run-up to the COP and while the conference was ongoing in November, there were a number of new announcements from countries that hadn't previously made net zero pledges. So this included Russia, Brazil, India, and many others. And we also had around about 100 countries signing up to the Global Methane Pledge. The Global Methane Pledge looks to bring about a 30% reduction in all sources of man-made methane by 2030. And I was at the COP with our executive director, um, Dr. Fatih Birol, and he pulled me aside at one point and asked if we knew what the impact of all of these new pledges was going to be and whether it would have a big impact on the long-term temperature rise. So with a bit of late-night number crunching in Glasgow and with lots of late-night number crunching from WIO team members in Paris, we looked to update that announced pledges scenario for the new emissions trajectory as a result of all of these pledges. And what we found was that the combined effect of all of the net zero pledges up to November and the methane pledge was, again, if they are achieved in full and on time, this would lead to a temperature rise of about 1.8 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. That's really great. And it was actually this scenario that originally caught my attention when you tweeted about it. I was like, huh, because I hadn't seen that particular outcome of 1.8 degrees by the end of the century previously. And I was like, where did this come from? So that's really helpful to know that this updated APS scenario, reflecting the pledges that were made at the COP summit in November, are actually getting us a little closer to the target. And this strikes me as being fairly helpful because 
as you say, it does imply that the world could limit warming to about 1.8 degrees if all the countries follow through on their pledges. And no doubt that is a big if. They could certainly fail to do so. Also, we've already seen so much environmental damage and so many climate-related billion-dollar disasters with the world just at 1.1 degrees of warming now, or thereabouts today, that we should hardly be sanguine about limiting warming to just 1.8 degrees. But this updated APS scenario does suggest that at least the world has identified pathways to a future of less than 2 degrees of warming and pledged to follow them. So I think that that should at least give us some hope that the world is trending farther away from these sort of inevitable climate doom scenarios that were implied by some of the higher emissions estimates used in the IPCC literature, like RCP 8.5, which have largely dominated the mainstream media coverage and the discourse about climate change so far. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a very fair statement, yes. The pledges that have been made undoubtedly are very significant, and I think we should interpret this as a very good sign. As you say, this is the first time that governments have come up with targets that are sufficiently ambitious that we have this chance of holding warming to below two degrees. But as you pointed out, this is a massive if. There's no guarantee that governments are going to implement their pledges. And in fact, what we see in the difference between the trends of the steps on the one hand and the announced pledges scenario on the other hand, is that in most cases, governments haven't yet put in place the policies that are needed to get on track with the APS Another very important point to note here is that all of these pledges, as you say, even if they're implemented in full, clearly don't get us on track with 1.5 degrees. We actually looked at the, the difference this would make over the near term. And what we found is that even if we achieve all of those pledges, it would close only 30% of the gap in emissions from the stated policy scenario to the net zero scenario. So only 30% of the gap from where we need to be to be on track with net zero by 2050. But you mentioned these much, much higher emission scenarios, and I've listened with interest to previous conversations you've had with guests on RCP 8.5. And ultimately, given the policies that we see and the pledges that we have today, as well as all of the technology improvements there have been, we just don't see a scenario like RCP 8.5 materializing. In fact, based on today's policy settings, as set out in the steps, CO2 emissions would peak around about the late 2020s, and then they would very, very gradually start to fall, so that in 2050, they're just below today's levels. If you contrast that with what are the emissions levels in RCP 8.5, that has about 75 billion tonnes of CO2 in 2050. So that's more or less double where we are today. Hmm. Clearly, the steps is a very, very long way away from this. But also, as you mentioned out, we shouldn't get carried away here. The steps still has a temperature rise of 2.6 degrees. And 2.6 degrees would lead to a catastrophic level of climate damages, whether that's extreme heat, droughts, river and coastal flooding, crop failures, and so on. And also, I think one thing which people don't always appreciate is that these are temperature rises in 2100 and CO2 emissions aren't at zero in 2100. And so the temperature rise would keep on increasing after that. Hmm. I think it's also perhaps worth noting that given all of the uncertainty that there is in climate modelling, 
there's a chance that the temperature rise could be much higher than 2.6 degrees. We did quite a bit of climate modelling for this year's World Energy Outlook. And what we found was that under the steps trajectory, there's around about a 10% chance that the temperature rise is going to be 3.5 degrees. So mm. really, you can get to very high levels of temperature rise with that steps trajectory. You know, I really appreciate your pointing out the nuance of these probabilities. I mean, in most cases, these scenarios are looking at a 50% probability, not a 95% probability. Yes. And I don't think that's often well understood. So especially in the case of the step scenario, which underlines, again, the fact that today's policy settings, as represented by the step scenario, still puts us on a catastrophic climate track. And so clearly, as you say, there is a big gap to fill between steps, between the track we're on now and the announced policy scenario. Still, the fact that the world governments brought pledges to the COP26 conference that would reduce the warming in 2100 by about half a degree from about 2.1 degrees under the old APS to about 1.8 degrees under the updated APS indicates, I think, that governments are in fact getting more serious about what they need to do and are representing that in their pledges. So what would be required to bring projected warming down to the 1.5 degree target that climate scientists say we need to hit as represented in your NZE scenario? Just as a reminder, in the NZE, in the net zero emissions by 2050 scenario, we want to achieve net zero in 2050 for CO2 and have a very substantial reduction in non-CO2 emissions, things like methane and NOx. And we also look to achieve this with no offsets from outside the energy sector. We wanted to show how the energy sector itself could achieve net zero. Hmm. And we also wanted the NZE to have a low reliance on negative emissions technologies. So things like direct air capture with carbon capture and storage or bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And our net zero pathway, when we published the report in May of last year, we set up more than 400 individual milestones that we think are needed to be on track for net zero in 2050. These cover a whole range of different things from unabated coal power phase out, when there would be no new internal combustion engines being sold, how much sustainable aviation fuel would increase, the deployment of carbon capture and storage, the deployment of low carbon hydrogen, and so on and so on. And the key thing that all of these different milestones highlight is that the long-term net zero objectives need to be linked with measurable short-term targets and policies. I think there's a real risk that whenever people talk about net zero in 2050 or in 2060, it's as if nothing needs to be done here and now. Hmm. So in the World Energy Outlook, we looked at some of the key things that are needed over the next 10 years. And there's, there's four key areas that we identified. The first one is related to a big push on clean electrification, really accelerating the decarbonization of the electricity mix is the most important lever available to reduce emissions. As you are well aware, costs for wind and solar have come down a lot. And every single year, deployment of wind and solar break new records. But even with that continual record breaking, things still aren't moving fast enough. Um, if we want to just put one number on this, capacity additions of wind and solar last year were around about 290 gigawatts. And in the net zero by 2050 scenario, in the year 2030, 
we have 1,000 gigawatts of wind and solar mm. installed. So mm. nearly a four times increase from where we are today. Okay. The second big area that we have is on energy efficiency. The energy intensity of the global economy has been falling. So the amount of energy that we use per unit of GDP has been coming down in recent years. It's been coming down by about 2% on average over the past 10 years. But in the net zero scenario, we need that to be a reduction of more than 4% every year. And so this is going to require a whole range of different elements, whether that's electrifying end uses. Electric cars are much more efficient than internal combustion engines, for example. We need to make sure that all new buildings are absolutely as efficient as they can be. We need to retrofit existing buildings. And we also need to bring about some behavioral changes that can reduce the demand for energy. The third big area that we wanted to focus on was on driving down methane emissions, in particular methane emissions from fossil fuel operations. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas and limiting methane is one of the key things to limit near-term global warming. And the most cost-effective opportunities that we think exist in this area are reducing methane from oil and gas operations. I think there's a bit of a perception out there that we don't really need to worry about tackling methane that occurs from oil, gas and coal production, because if we reduce fossil fuel consumption, that's going to take care of the methane emissions. But what we actually find is that methane abatement isn't going to come about fast enough or to a large enough degree simply by reducing fossil fuel use. There's concerted effort that's needed from governments and from the industry as a whole to secure those large-scale reductions in methane. Mm. And finally, the last big area is on innovation. One of the big headline findings that we have been speaking about in our recent reports is that all of the technologies that are needed to achieve deep emission cuts to 2030, to be on track with net zero in 2050, all of those technologies are available and an awful lot of them are cost-effective today. But if we're thinking about a full transition to net zero, we're going to require more than that. We're going to have to tackle emissions in sectors like iron and steel, cement, long-distance transport. And in these sectors, we know the types of technologies that can help to achieve their full decarbonisation. This isn't about inventing completely new, unheard-of technologies, but we just don't yet have those technologies available in the market. Many of those are at the demonstration or even at the prototype stage today. So I'm thinking about technologies like advanced batteries and carbon capture and storage, low carbon hydrogen, sustainable bioenergy, and there's many, many others. And it's important to make the investments into those technologies, into the innovation that's needed on those to get the ball rolling. We need to make sure that we can get those technologies into the market as soon as possible so that come later on in this decade and from the 2030 onwards, we can roll them out at the scale and at the pace that's needed to be on track for net zero in 2050. I'm glad you made that point because I think a lot of people garbled that idea or <laughs> misreported it. And I saw many people writing about this point that IEA made saying, oh, well, IEA is saying that we need all these technologies that we don't have today. And that's not what IEA was saying. We do have the technologies. We know what 
technologies are that can solve these problems. And so it's really a matter of commercializing them and getting them to scale. Absolutely. All right. Well, in the WIO, IEA says that, quote, finance is the missing link to accelerate clean energy deployment in developing economies. Could you elaborate on that? Because I think many people are under the impression that accelerating clean energy deployment is more urgent in the developed countries that are currently generating the most emissions rather than the newer countries that are still kind of getting up the energy ladder. Yeah, I mean, perhaps it's worth putting a few numbers out there just to lay the groundwork for this. So sure. in our NZE, we need to see a huge surge in clean energy investment. Over the past few years, investment in clean energy has averaged about $1 trillion, just over that. But on average, over the period to 2030, we need to spend about $3 trillion globally. So at the global level, we need to see a tripling in overall spending on clean energy. But actually, this gap that there is between the situation today and where we need it to be is even starker in emerging market and developing economies. Spending on clean energy in those countries was less than $150 billion dollars in 2020, and that needs to get up to a trillion dollars as quickly as possible. So that's a sevenfold increase. And there have been some good examples of developing economies mobilizing the capital that's needed for clean energy projects. India has been very successful, for example, in financing a rapid expansion in solar PV. But there's also been a number of persistent challenges. And actually, many of those challenges have been made even worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. And one thing that we have found in our recent reports is that the cost of capital, the cost of financing, is up to seven times more expensive in emerging market and developing economies than it is in advanced economies. And this is really important because if clean energy technologies are more capital intensive than traditional technologies, and to be honest, most of them are more capital intensive, that means if the cost of capital is higher, it makes investment into clean energy technologies less economically viable. Another aspect which I think is incredibly important, um, which is often forgotten in the context of reducing emissions, is that there are a very large number of people today who don't have access to electricity and who rely on clean cooking facilities. And unfortunately, COVID-19 broke some of the trend that we'd seen in improvements in both of those areas. So actually, the number of people without access to electricity is set to have risen in 2021. And almost all of that occurs in sub-Saharan Africa. So the net zero scenario, it doesn't just want to get emissions down to zero, it wants to achieve universal energy access by 2030. And so we're going to need to see a reversal in those recent trends. And the number that we have that we estimated to provide universal energy access to clean electricity and to clean cooking is actually quite a small number. It's about $40 billion per year. This is clearly only a fraction of the overall investment that's needed in the energy sector. So there are close to a billion people today who don't have access to electricity. There's more than 2.5 billion people in the world who don't have access to clean cooking facilities. And for that sum, for 40 billion per year, that would ensure that they all have access to electricity and to clean cooking facilities by 2030. 
You know, it's frustrating to me to hear this because I also follow sectors like tech and media and finance, and I know that $40 billion a year, as you say, isn't that much. It's, it's absolutely manageable for the private sector. But this issue of creditworthiness, I think, has a couple of facets. On the one hand, okay, maybe investors genuinely aren't familiar enough with these markets to give them capital at a low cost. But equally, I perceive an element of just basic laziness here where it seems like it shouldn't be that hard for them to gain familiarity and reduce their perception of risk or find innovative ways to offset that risk, but they just aren't motivated to do it. And in some cases, that's probably the fault of the compensation structures that people who work in financial institutions have. But it also seems to be just a lack of motivation, full stop, where there's just nothing to make them overcome their ignorance and find ways to bridge this gap. They just want the rest of the world to come to them and to meet their existing requirements, which were developed or structured around what works in the developed world. And we've discussed some of these issues previously, for example, with Justin Gway in episode 12 and Christine Ibe Singer in episode 21 and Richenda Van Leeuwen in episode 89. And in particular, we talked about these problems with clean cooking with Richenda because that's something that she's been intimately involved with. And it just seems like even within the international development banks that should be leaning into this problem and actively trying to find ways to de-risk more projects in emerging economies, to offer clearer risk metrics, and to bring down the cost of capital so private capital can really get moving, maybe by making it part of an incentive structure, for example, that project originators at the development banks must increase the amount of capital they mobilize toward developing markets every year or something like that. But they're just still on the back foot, playing it safe. I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment? And if not, what am I not seeing? I think that's a very fair statement. I think everybody in this space can do better. Clearly, there's a role for domestic and local governments to reduce barriers to mobilizing capital, whether that's through accelerating licensing, having clear enforcement of contracts and dispute resolution. And public sources of finance are likely to be important going forwards for a number of technologies like grid infrastructure and a number of areas like that. But when we think about development finance, really, the key thing is that it has to play this catalytic role in attracting private finance. Development finance is going to be essential in markets and sectors which are at the very early stages of maturity, or in areas where risks are hard to mitigate. And that's particularly the case for energy access projects where communities are vulnerable or where communities can be in remote areas. And for all of this, a priority really has to be for these international public finance institutions to be given this strong strategic mandate to finance clean energy transitions. But I also think there's a role here for private actors. And we know that the energy transition has to be global in scale and that there are many companies from oil and gas companies to banks who already have a global presence. And I think this could be exploited much more to accelerate clean energy financing in emerging market and developing economies. Just to give one example here, one of the big strengths of oil and gas companies, and in fact, one of the reasons that the companies have done so well in the past is that they are willing to undertake operations in parts of the world that are perceived as risky. Um, I mean, this is absolutely second nature to them. They're used to working in areas with low political stability, without necessarily a great rule of law or government effectiveness. And if they can do this with falling gas, 
um, you've got to ask the question, why can't they also do it for clean energy technologies? And really, this could be an area where those sorts of companies with global presence could really get well ahead of the curve in terms of what's needed for accelerating the clean energy transition. You know, that's a great point about the oil and gas industry and where it's willing to operate. I remember seeing some pretty astonishing stories about that and reading Steve Call's book, Private Empire. It's remarkable. Well, speaking of oil and gas, I know you have an extensive background in it and a deep understanding of what will be required in those sectors in the energy transition. So I'd like to switch topics here and talk about that for a bit. And I think I'd like to start with a paper you co-authored in 2015 titled The Geographical Distribution of Fossil Fuels Unused When Limiting Global Warming to 2 Degrees C. In it, you and your co-author, Paul Eakins, essentially model how much of the remaining fossil fuel resources will need to be left in the ground as stranded assets if warming is to be held to 2 degrees. And your model's results suggested that a third of oil reserves, half of gas reserves, and over 80% of current coal reserves would need to remain unused from 2010 to 2050 in order to hit that 2 degrees C limit. Now, your paper has since been referenced in more recent literature, such as one that I saw published in Nature last September, which estimated what stranded fossil fuel resources would be if warming were to be held to a 1.5 degree limit. And that paper estimated that nearly 60% of the oil and natural gas and 90% of the coal would have to be left in the ground, and that oil and gas production must decline by 3% each year between now and 2050. Now, I want to remind our listeners here that the entire reason the IEA was founded in the first place in 1974 was to provide guidance to the rich countries of the world about the remaining fossil fuel reserves, (laughs) which was done in the wake of the Arab oil embargo of 1973, which caused oil shortages and drove up gasoline prices to painful levels. Now, I realize that IEA's mission has expanded and evolved considerably since then, but I just mention that because if there's one thing the IEA knows about, it's global oil and gas. So, Given what you know about how the world's oil and gas business operates and how dependent the global economy is on the constant flow of about 100 million barrels a day of oil and about 10.4 billion cubic meters of gas every day, how likely is it that the world can reduce its demand for these fuels by the required amounts by 2050? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On January 27th, a federal judge ruled that the Biden administration did not appropriately account for the greenhouse gas emissions that would result from oil and gas leases it approved last year and canceled them. The leases covered more than 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico, the largest lease sale in United States history, and their cancellation was viewed as a major victory for environmental groups that criticized the Biden administration for holding the sale after promising to transition away from fossil fuels. Now the Interior Department must conduct a new environmental analysis that accounts for the greenhouse gas emissions that would result from oil and gas production on the leases before deciding whether to hold a new auction. New oil and gas drilling on public lands and federal waters has been fiercely contested in recent years. Shortly after taking office, Biden fulfilled a campaign promise by signing an executive order pausing the issuing of new leases in those locations. In response, Republican attorneys general from 13 states sued, and a federal judge in Louisiana blocked the executive order, also ruling that previously scheduled lease sales in the Gulf must go ahead. The administration has struggled to resolve the tension between its pledges to transition away from oil and gas and its desire to keep oil and gas production up and prices down. In November, for example, the Interior Department issued a long-awaited report that was supposed to determine the future of federal oil and gas leasing, but it skirted the question of ending the practice and instead recommended the government charge companies higher rates to drill. There are also contentious questions being debated about exactly how much emissions result from oil and gas production and consumption originating in federal lands and waters. Both oil industry representatives and environmental groups have vowed to continue their respective campaigns. Item 2. On January 6th, four former nuclear regulators, known collectively as the Nuclear Consulting Group, published a brief statement pouring cold water on the potential role of nuclear in addressing climate change. Co-written by Greg Jasko, former head of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.